AI is one of the hottest topics right now. Everyone is talking about ChatGPT, and there's so many new AI tools popping up in the market. It's just an incredible time of growth, and I think we are at the start of a technology revolution. So I thought, well, what about using AI for conservation? In today's episode, I have the honor of chatting with Lily Shu from Harvard University who has actually built an AI system to effectively thwart poaching in protected areas around the world. So we're going to learn all about the nitty-gritty details of how she built this out, how it works, and yeah, it's going to be a super fun episode, so check it out. Welcome to the EcoChat Podcast. In each episode, we chat with experts in conservation, animal welfare, sustainability, or environmental science to learn how you and I can make a difference for the planet. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, Lily, how's it going? Hi, Sam. I'm doing great. Um, It's wonderful to be able to chat with you in the EcoChat community today. Likewise, pleasure to have you on. Now, the time of our recording is Q1 of 2023. And right now, AI and GPT is just blowing up. Everyone's talking about artificial intelligence right now. It's really revolutionizing a variety of of industries. So our topic today of using AI for conservation is very timely. And I know you've used AI to thwart poaching efforts in a lot of national parks, which is super fascinating. But before we dive into the details of how exactly you did that, Can you first give us some background on the problem and what exactly you're trying to solve? Yes. So I am a computer scientist and my work focuses on how to develop new research in AI um, using machine learning and other techniques to help allocate limited resources for environmental crises. But I focus specifically on the biodiversity crisis in which uh, we have huge declines in numbers of animal populations um, worldwide. And uh, we're trying to um, help rangers and protected area managers um, better protect these endangered species. Okay, so you mentioned the term biodiversity crisis and that a lot of species are declining right now. So what exactly is the biodiversity crisis? So the biodiversity crisis is uh, the the exponential um, increase in the uh, rates of extinction um, of many species around the world. So the, the a recent estimate from the International Panel um, on Biodiversity, the equivalent of the IPCC, um, which is the International Panel on Climate Change, uh, estimated in 2019 that there are 1 million species that are threatened with extinction. And this is not, like they're going to be extinct at some point, but this is kind of in the next few decades within our lifetimes that these animals could be these entire species can be extinct. And this is 1 million species out of 8 million total species um, in existence. So one in every eight species is threatened with extinction. And the majority of this um, is unfortunately a result of human action, of anthropogenic activity. So this is um, human activity from um, land cover degradation to um, to taking away habitat and transforming into agricultural fields um, to changing on our climate through um, through carbon emissions, through polluting the waters, um, and to activities, direct um, hunting of animal species, such as through poaching. 
So the combination of all um, of these human actions are driving us into what um, scientists are now referring to as the sixth mass extinction, um, which is the first mass extinction event since the dinosaurs were last around. And this is also the first uh, mass extinction that is actually caused from human activity. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. So let me just recap. So you mentioned one in eight species are at risk of extinction. And right now we are in a mass extinction event that's caused by humans due to activities such as habitat destruction, pollution, climate change, hunting, over-harvesting, etc. Yes. So, yeah, this all sounds very gloomy. So what can we do about it? So there are, um, I think, computer scientists and AI researchers can help um, along many ends um, of the spectrum from first just kind of understanding what the problem is. So uh, global scale biodiversity monitoring um, is a huge challenge on its own because in order for us to be able to understand and start acting against uh, the biodiversity crisis, we have to know uh, which species are are being most threatened. So what what are the current populations and how are these numbers declining? And that's actually a really um, hard thing to, to know, just how many, you know, elephants are there in the world and how has the number changed over the years? So computer science can help us um, manage big data sets like that. But um, computer science can also help with, um, after we have an understanding of what the problem is and have identified what we want to focus on, we can actually also use AI to help um, determine the optimal actions to take, or at least, not, not if not necessarily the optimal action, a more strategic action to take. Because the critical challenge is that um, there is a very, very large um, amount of the world that we like to protect, um, all of these animal habitats, in particular areas that we've designated as protected areas. But the number of resources that we have to protect these areas are unfortunately very limited. So we only have so many rangers in the world, for example, and um, they have these rangers are tasked with protecting very, very large landscapes from um, poaching and other kinds of um, illegal wildlife uh, hunting and um, resource extraction. So figuring out how to make the best use of these limited resources is therefore a computational um, question that can um, involve AI to both kind of understand the problem of where should we um, be going, which animal should we be focusing on, and then actually deciding like, and how should the rangers be patrolling, which are areas that we should prioritize over others. Okay, so you mentioned two use cases there. One is using AI and machine learning to assess what's going on. For example, predict population numbers. And then the second use case is using AI to determine the optimal decision to make. Yes. And the problem here that you mentioned is because we're faced with limited resources, but there's so much to protect. Um, it's important to determine which actions we should take to have the most impact. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. And my work focuses on the second part of of that question of um, once we've identified a problem, um, then how can we best address that problem. So in the context of um, illegal wildlife poaching, it, we have poachers going into large protected areas around the world and placing a bunch of snares um, and traps to trap elephants, um, deer, um, and other species. And how can we um, figure out where in these large protected areas are there the most snares? So where should rangers be um, going on patrol in a given day or a given week. 
Got it. So the issue that you're trying to tackle with your work would be illegal poaching and hunting in these protected areas, correct? Actually. So I just want to get a sense of how severe or widespread is this issue and like why should we prioritize addressing poaching and hunting in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. So poaching um, is the second greatest threat to biodiversity, um, second only to habitat loss. So it's a major, major driver of the biodiversity crisis. And poaching is most prevalent um, in the same places that we have the most uh, abundant wildlife and the most diversity of species. So that would be um, in Southeast Asia and in Africa, especially because those are the places where there's the most um, like big mammals, such as tigers and elephants, which are uh, more targeted by um, by poachers for the very lucrative illegal black market for wildlife goods. Um, and poaching is also um, is also uh, prevalent throughout uh, Latin America, in particular, like in the jungle, the Amazon, um, and whatnot. So, it, poaching patterns are really um, in parallel with the places um, around the world. Uh, that have the greatest biodiversity um, and oftentimes those places um, are unfortunately um, the are the countries and regions of the world uh, with the uh, uh, with the lowest incomes you mentioned that these poachers usually use snares to catch wildlife is that correct yeah is the use of snares common around the world like is this the most common approach is to just place snares in these protected areas to catch wildlife yes so um globally the most prevalent form um, um, of poaching is through passive hunting techniques such as uh, placing snares Um, and this happens um quite pervasively across um southeast asia africa and latin america Um, i will say that um one thing that we've learned uh, more recently is that in Latin America, the most prevalent methods of poaching there actually are um, through through guns and other um, more active forms of hunting. And that's more of just a, a cultural difference because there's more of a cultural background of snare, snaring um, in Asia and in Africa um, than in Latin America. But predominantly um, in the places that we've worked most on, um, we focus on the, the placement and removal of snares because that's where um, where rangers have the potential to have a really big impact because when they go on patrol and remove a snare, every snare that they remove corresponds with an- one animal life that they're saving. Do you have any stats on how prevalent snare hunting is in the world? Yeah. Or like what's the average density of snares in national parks, for example? Yeah, if I wish that we had like a good global estimate because I think th- that kind of understanding would be really, really helpful um, for our, our planning. And also, if we had, if we knew that number perfectly, then that means we would have a lot more information um, and be able to strategize a lot more effectively on how to more effectively prevent poaching. So, unfortunately, we don't have good um, global estimates. But for example, um, in one site that we work closely with, this is Free Park Wildlife Sanctuary in Cambodia. Um, and this is a large protected area, um, about 4,000 square kilometers, which is uh, about the size of Rhode Island in the United States, um, or about, I think, seven times the size of Singapore. So um, Shipak Wildlife Sanctuary um, is home to many uh, a diversity of species, um, including um, deer and monkeys and elephants um, and leopards. And 
the park managers in Sheep Park have estimated that for every one deer in the park, there are four snares. Oh, wow. Uh, because <laughs> because snares are extremely um, cheap and uh, easy to make. So the, the most um, prevalent form of snaring is wire snares, where they'll just take wire um, stripped from car tires that have been abandoned on the side of the road. Um, and they just take the, the wire from inside, use that um, to fashion like a, a big loop that they'll tie between trees. So it's very easy for them to, you know, place uh, dozens of snares in a single go. Um, and then the snares can just kind of sit around for, for as long as they wish. Hmm. On that note, can you explain to us how exactly a snare works? So the way um, snaring typically works is if you have a wire snare, um, you'll have this kind of big uh, loop of wire or big length of wire and you'll fashion it into a loop. Um, so you can imagine uh, there's it, it's tied off um, at one end and it's tied onto itself and it makes a big circle. And it's essentially a noose. So if uh, when, uh, when this, this big loop is strung between two trees, an animal will um, unknowingly walk right through um, this trail and its head will get caught in the snare and then as it keeps walking then because it's a loop the snare will tighten around the animal's neck um, until the animal um, either suffocates or it's just caught in place until it it dies or is discovered by the uh rediscovered by the teacher okay. interesting so, i didn't know it was to noose the head other foot snares as well yes there's 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 many different types of, of snaring you can uh there's also Oftentimes, it will be kind of placed in the middle of a trail, so then that would be more um, kind of targeting small, smaller game that will be able to walk through it. Um, there's also um, snares that will be aimed at trying to t- uh, catch the foot of an animal. Um, and then there's also larger um, traps that are kind of claw traps that are that will kind of close in. It's kind of more the kind of uh, the image that you can imagine from cartoons, like somebody's like walking along and this big trap catches their foot. Um, like think of a, a Ben and Jerry scenario, <laughs> um, for example. But there's also other types of um, of passive hunting, such as pitch traps. So poachers will dig a big hole in the ground and cover up with leaves so it looks like just normal, uh, normal ground. And then when an animal walks through, then it'll uh, fall through this pile of leaves um, and not be able to escape because the hole is too deep. But you can imagine that digging uh, a pit trap is much more effort than just putting out a wire snare. So uh, wire snares really um, are end up being the most prevalent form. Got it. What are some of the common species that these poachers would target? So there's um, poaching is kind of separated into two primary categories. So one of our big game hunters that are looking for uh, more expensive species such as elephants, um, where the ivory um, of the elephant tusks can sell for vast um, quantities of money on the black market. They're uh, looking for tigers whose bones and skin are quite valued um, on the legal black market. They're looking for rhinos whose horns are believed to cure cancer in, um, in certain countries. But I want to emphasize that all of these are myths. So all of the animals um, or animal products that people believe to have possibly medicinal purposes, uh, there's pretty much no uh, scientific evidence that any of this is true. 
Bannerhorn, for example, is made out of uh, simply keratin, which is the same material that our fingernails are and hair are made out of. So if you're trying to like consume Rhinohorn to cure cancer, you might as well just be chewing on your own fingernails. Um, so aside from the, the big game poaching, like these really valuable species, there's also bushmeat poaching um, that just numbers-wise ends up being the most prevalent form of poaching. And this is often uh, more, typically more local poachers coming in and placing um, snares to trap um, deer and pig um, and other kind of smaller animals for and less valuable animals for either direct consumption or for um, subsistence hunting by selling these products um, for for added income. Uh, but the unfortunate thing about snaring is that it is so di- um, it is completely indiscriminate. So even if um, uh, somebody well-meaning um, is only trying to go out and um, catch a pig as a form of like supplementary food, um, this snare could inadvertently catch an endangered leopard instead. Since you mentioned that these snares are indiscriminate, just out of curiosity, I don't know if you have the answer to the question, but what happens if the poacher catches an animal that's not one of their target species, so they can't sell it for anything? What happens to that animal? <laughs> I have no idea. I really can't. Uh, I can't do much more than speculate at what the typical pattern is. I, but I, I would guess that if there is anything consumable, they would either consume that meat. Uh, or they would try to sell, if they, for example, ended up catching a, a leopard, they would try to sell that um, probably for much less money than uh, a more well-connected poacher um, would be able to. But I'm, I'm sure it doesn't just just completely go to waste. But either way, that animal is probably just either dead or injured, uh, extremely injured by that point. That makes sense. So we've identified the problem, which is excessive hunting, which is one of the main causes of the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. And we're faced with a lot of poaching and snares in these protected areas. Yes. I think you mentioned that there are four snares per deer in one of the national parks, which is just a crazy number. So you mentioned that one of the use cases of AI is to help us make the right decision given limited resources, such as the number of rangers in these national parks. So can you elaborate more on what exactly these limited resources are? Yes. So rangers um, are the most prevalent, uh, I kind of the first line of defense um, against poaching. So rangers, um, we have them like all throughout the world. So in national parks, um, for example, places like uh, Yosemite um, or Acadia National Park in the U.S. um, or um, in the Alps in uh, throughout Europe. Um, a lot of these parks will have um, rangers who are such are um, are kind of stewards of the land. So their responsibilities are uh, manifold from like maintaining trails if there is a tourist presence around. Um, but for these kind of game preserves that are really meant to be um, areas reserved not just for humans to enjoy but rather to preserve the the habitat with animals and these kinds of wildlife reserves and these kinds of protected areas the rangers jobs are to um keep the wildlife protected um as as much as possible so this comes in the form of rangers going on patrols throughout the protected areas 
So they'll um, go um, on motorbikes or vehicles, go to a specific part of the park, then get off um, and patrol around looking for any signs of trespassing um, or other um, forms of um, of illegal activity. So sometimes they'll find snares directly. Um, sometimes they'll find a footprint to indicate that a human has been has been coming through. Um, sometimes they'll see they'll hear you know a vehicle in the distance. So they hear hear a gunshot, for example. So um, all of these signs um, that rangers are trying to watch out for because they want to understand um, what human activity um, is happening in the park. So. Aside from coaching, there's other forms of encroachment. So people might be coming into these protected areas um, for illegal timber extraction. So they'll be coming with chainsaws and cutting down trees, um, in particular if there's more valuable trees, such as mahogany. Um, and they're also looking for just uh, um, other signs of, of use in a park. So for example, there might be um, people coming through and illegally extracting tar from the trees um, mm. or... Uh, poaching for songbirds for sell on the pet market, for example, and through through conducting these patrols, rangers are trying to um, observe as much as, of this activity as possible, um, take preventative action whenever possible. So it's not very often that they'll actually come in contact with um, a poacher or other intruder. Uh, but if there's a snaring, for example, they would, they'll actually be able to remove that snare. But another huge um, goal of ranger patrols is deterrence. So the goal is that uh, by conducting these patrols, by showing a presence um, throughout this protected area where other humans are not supposed to be entering at all, then um, rangers are able to deter poachers um, from returning in the future. And that really is the goal, to, to prevent poaching from happening at all. All right, so we've identified the problem, which is overhunting, overpoaching, and this is one of the biggest factors in the biodiversity crisis. And we are faced with a limited amount of resources, such as the number of rangers patrolling these natural areas. Yes. So what can we do about this? Yes. So uh, we have, you know, we have this, this major threat to biodiversity, which is poaching, which is the second biggest threat to biodiversity. And we have um, the, pri- the first line of defense against poachers, which are rangers who will go throughout these protected areas to try to prevent poaching and remove as many snares as possible. But the challenge is um, with environmental conservation, uh, the problem is planet scale, uh, but the number of resources that we have, like we can't protect the entire planet, um, at least not on like a daily or weekly basis. So instead, we have to figure out, um, we have such a limited number of rangers, how can we best make use of this limited resources? So again, to um, go go out uh, east to uh, Cambodia as our example, um, talking back about Sri Pakwada Sanctuary, which is a site that we've been working with um, for about four years now in partnership with the WWF. So um, Sri Pak, I mentioned, um, is quite a large park, about 4,000 square kilometers. And for this entire park, they have only... 72 rangers to patrol the entire area. So you can just imagine 72 people going through um, this giant forest looking for small wire snares. It's a really, very tough problem. Um, and there's many places in the park that they've just never been to at all. They have no idea uh, what the poaching pattern like um, is there. Or even in places they have been, they just haven't gone back in many years. So perhaps patterns have changed. 
So what we want to do is um, is leverage historical data about poaching observations to try to predict more generalizable poaching patterns to offer better insight for rangers and their uh, the protected area managers to make more informed decisions about how to do their patrols. So um, as computer scientists, we can step in by leveraging machine learning and other AI tools that can um, really help with this kind of um, generalizability to take the uh, data that we have that, you know, is imperfect, that has uh, that has all these um, have all these biases and huge amounts of variance, and then try to actually extract meaningful signal from this data. So specifically, what we do is take the historical ranger patrol observations. So whenever rangers go on patrol, they'll carry GPS trackers with them to record where they've been and where they found any kind of poaching activity. So it could be here we found a snare, here we found a campsite, here we found, um, we like heard, you know, a motorcycle in the background or whatnot. And then take the many, many years of historical patrol data that have been collected throughout Shreepak. And then we can feed that into a machine learning model along with anything that we think that might be correlated with poaching threat. So we um, have information throughout the park about um, what the elevation is, where the rivers are, where the roads are, where the villages are. Um, we have um, estimates about the land cover, the um, animal density. The We can use remote sensing information to get the climate and temperature throughout time. And we can get uh, vegetation indices such as NDVI and all of these um, give us information about the different parts of the landscape. Um, and then throughout collecting all of those landscape features, as well as um, historical poaching observations, we can start to um, build a machine learning model that will find parallels in between. Okay, it kind of seems like um, areas that are getting a lot of poaching in May, for example, are areas that have um, are closer to the river, perhaps, that have a little bit more precipitation, that have a higher vegetation, that is close to the roads, uh, but sufficiently far from a patrol host. And then by starting to like, see those patterns, we can um, identify, even for sites that have never been patrolled at all or have not been patrolled for a very long time, we can identify how similar it is to sites that have either experienced a lot of poaching or sites that have experienced only a little bit of poaching and then make predictions about the poaching risk at that new site. So um, as computer scientists, we can help the rangers gain better insight based on their past data and make predictions throughout the entire park, draw all of Sweet for and estimate, okay, for every one square kilometer region of the park, what do we think of the likelihood is that poachers will place snares in this location in the next month? So if today is... February 2023, we can make predictions on the poaching um, activity in March 2023, and then um, share that those insights with rangers for them to incorporate into um, the patrol management plans. Okay, a lot of info there. So just to summarize it a bit first, you're taking years and years of patrol data, and this is what the rangers have found and recorded during their patrols, right? And yeah. this includes topography, temperature, others other geospatial data, and then you're, you're feeding it into this machine learning model. And 
So basically, you're training the model with this data. Exactly. And in the end, it can spit out the likelihood of snares being present for a given location. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. Got it. Now, digging deeper into the technical details, what exactly is this machine learning model? Like, is it a neural network or a regression or like, how exactly does it work? Yes. So the the technique um, behind um, our our prediction system is a supervised learning approach in machine learning. So we're using historical ranger data that um, as our training data. So um, all of the historical data that we have about the site um, is incorporates for a specific one square kilometer region in the park at a specific month in the past. So we break down the data um, in into months to, to make each set of predictions. So we have each month of historical data and we have many, many months um, of past examples. We'll associate for each area in the park a label of where that label will be one if ranger found a snare in that location or zero if they did not find a snare. And then um, we're trying to build a uh, supervised learning uh, model that will predict uh, for a new site in the park or a site that we've been to before in the upcoming month, um, what do we think the label of the site will be? Do we think uh, that it will have snares or do we think it won't have snares? And because we are trying to, you know, extrapolate into the future, we can't know uh, with certainty. So we end up giving a probabilistic estimate. So um, with this, what our um, AI system will tell us is uh, what is the probability in uh, this one square kilometer region of the park based on its elevation, uh, the land cover, the animal density, um, that what is the probability that this area will experience switching in the next time step in March 2023, for example. I'm curious, what's the tech stack that you used for this? Like, is it R or Python? And what's what are the packages that you used? The majority of uh, machine learning uh, frameworks are done um, in Python. So uh, that's what we use uh, for our system That's called that we call PAWS, the Protection Assistant for Wildlife Security. Um, and actually, a version um, of the, the PAWS code base is actually available uh, on my GitHub page. So <laughs> if anybody w- wants uh, to poke through it, um, they're, they're welcome to do so. So this pause framework that you mentioned, is it like a pre-trained model where people can just plug in their own data? Or, or how does it work? So it's not, um, it's not a pre-trained model that um, users would just fine-tune if that's what any of, uh, any of your audience members are used to. If they've played around with, for example, natural language processing or uh, computer vision uh, data sets. But instead, um, we uh, have an, a system to process this data um, for parks. So we'll be able to take in any um, the observations from rangers as well as all these landscape characteristics. And then our, our pause system will offer a, a way to process all of these into one square kilometer regions, um, into months, and and translate this kind of like jumble of data that is just um, continuous across space and continuous across time um, and break it down um, into discrete one month uh, categories, discrete one square kilometer regions. And then um, 
feed that into uh, a machine learning uh, pipeline that also accounts for um, a critical challenge of imperfect detection um, in this data. So imperfect detection refers to the fact that the labels that we're considering, whether or not we're finding a snare, um, is not fully reliable because if we found a snare, we know for a fact that snares are present in the park. But if we didn't find a snare, um, then it's not necessarily a case that no snare was around. Um, it could be that we just missed seeing the snare because it was hidden behind a bush, or perhaps um, we patrolled, but then the, the poachers came a week afterwards and we just, just barely missed them. So uh, part of part of what our um, our system does is overcome that imperfect detection um, by looking at the amount of patrol effort um, as a proxy for the reliability of our negative labels. So what the intuition behind that is, um, if a ranger patrols um, an area at half a kilometer and didn't find a snare, we don't really know whether or not a snare was actually there. But if that that same team of rangers patrolled that same area for 10 kilometers and still didn't find anything, we can be much more confident that no snare actually was present at all. So that um, that intuition of the more patrol um, we do without finding a snare, the more confident we can be that that actually is ground truth. You mentioned imperfect detection as a potential challenge in training these models. What are some other challenges or limitations that you were faced with? Yeah, another um, huge challenge uh, that we gave, that um, came about uh, many times as we were working with more and more sites is that of limited data. So uh, many sites um, who, many protected areas are just starting to um, begin their patrol management and whatnot, or they're only starting to integrate with this um, protected area management software called SMART, the Spatial Monitoring and Reporting Tool, which is uh, this really nice uh, and, and useful and widely adopted data set or database for protected area management. So the SMART software system enables you to um, record um, in all your historical patrol data. It syncs in really nicely with a mobile application that rangers can carry um, on their phones to, um, to make note of all the patrol observations. So some sites are only just starting to use smart. They're only just starting to record the patrol data. So they um, would really like to understand what their um, what the poacher patterns are like in their park. They just don't have enough um, historical data to train a machine learning model because these machine learning models are really data heavy. Are are sorry, are really data hungry and want a lot of past examples to be able to make good predictions. But if we only have three months of data, for example, we can't really expect a machine learning model to to perform well. So for cases like that, where we have uh, a scarcity of data, we have to be really proactive um, about how we're uh, how we're designing our approach, um, how we're designing our model to ensure that we're not um, focusing um, too heavily on areas that we've been in the past. So we're not kind of like over patrolling the same area again and again and again, but rather that we're doing a nice balance between um, going to the areas that seem to be promising hotspots from the past, but then also exploring areas that we've never been to um, that might have um, a lot of potential poaching. So navigating that trade-off between um, what we refer to as exploration versus exploitation 
um, in computer science um, is a critical challenge, which required um, new algorithmic development. And that was really um, where like the research side um, of all of this was coming in to figure out how we can uh, develop new algorithmic advances to address the data shortcomings and other um, environmental challenges of, of this landscape. Hmm. Very fascinating. So to confirm, for a, let's say, a new protected area <laughs> that hasn't collected any historical data, yeah, would this not work? Like, they would need to start collecting at least a few months to a few years of patrol data in order to, to plug it into this model and generate accurate results. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. We can't, um, in, in order to make these predictions, we have to have um, sufficient data um, in the past, at least at least a few months, ideally a year or more, but it really depends on the data quality. And the reason for this is because there's two key challenges um, that are preventing us from just building one kind of global model and using it throughout the parks. So the first is that of data security, because parks um, don't want to share their data um, with each other. It's very, very sensitive. They don't want this data getting around, especially because a model that was trained um, on their data um, to predict poaching risk um, could then be used by poachers themselves to try to um, predict where raiders will go and then avoid those locations as a result. So we kind of want to avoid that strategic um, behavior and avoid giving it um, additional information um, to the other side. But another challenge um, that prevents us from building a universal model is that poaching patterns just um, change so drastically between parks. So one, the landscape of those parks are very different. So, um, And the landscape features that they have um, information about might not even be the same. So one park might have estimates of animal density, for example, whereas other parks have not been able to collect that information. But additionally, um, because the animal species that are being poached in that in each park differ so so drastically, that really changes where the poachers are going and what they're kind of going after. So it's really hard to find um, a, gen- a universal model that applies across a wide range of parks. And as a result, we focus instead on training um, one park um, individually rather than kind of building a a general model to be used by many parks simultaneously. And we found that to be um, a a much more effective approach. Makes sense. For this model that you built, is it only used for snares or can it be used to detect other types of poaching activities or use cases? So the model that um, we propose, uh, our pod system, the protection system for wildlife security, um, was designed for detecting snares, but it can be used for it's agnostic to whatever the pr- type of prediction is. So if the rangers have collected a lot of data about illegal logging or um, of um, of illegal fishing, then we could make predictions um, based on those labels. So instead of um, looking for all poaching optimizations in the data set, we could look instead for a different category that they've labeled. And I want to talk about a really cool use case um, that we found um, in Malaysia. So this is working with Royal Baloom State Park in northern Malaysia. And Royal Baloom um, has three different classes of poachers that are all active throughout the park. So they have um, international poachers who are coming in looking for big game, um, such as um, tigers and elephants. There are local poachers who are more focused on bushmeat. And there's also songbird poachers that are coming in trying to catch songbirds. 
But the fascinating thing is that all these three different types of poachers, um, even though you the rangers um, barely will rarely ever encounter a poacher directly, they um, can actually identify the different um, classes of poachers based on the different and the snares that they trap and, and that they put out. So um, bushy poachers are typically putting out wire snares, like we talked about before. Um, big game poachers are more looking at those like giant like elephant foot claws, for example. Whereas some bird poachers are putting out nets to trap birds. So all these three different types of poaching have three different kinds of snares. And that is all recorded as um, different observations um, in the po- the ranger collected um, patrol database. So because we have um, those three different types of snares um, identified separately in the data, we can actually make um, separate predictions for um, songbird poaching versus big game poaching versus bushmeat poaching. Nice. What are some of the tangible results that your model has generated so far? Or like any success stories you would like to share? Yes. So we've um, deployed our, our system um, in uh, initially uh, with um, field tests in Uganda and Cambodia. So this is kind of like the earlier stages um, of our work um, back in around 2018. Um, 2018, 2019, where we were just trying to say, okay, well, um, we've developed this model, we've evaluated it on the data that we have using all of the traditional metrics in computer science, such as AUC and accuracy and precision and recall and whatnot. Um, it seems like we're perform- performing pretty well, but we want to make sure that we're performing well, not just like from this computational standpoint, but actually um, in terms of like meaningful impact on the ground. So to evaluate that, uh, we institute a series of field tests in um, Merced Falls National Park and in Uganda and Sri Park Wildlife Sanctuary in Cambodia. And what we are looking at, um, we're trying to evaluate the quality of our predictions. So to keep this a more controlled um, experiment, we uh, would um, take make predictions on um, throughout the entire park and then we would pick a subset of 15 areas for this controlled field test. So of the areas that we selected, the five of them we predicted to be at high risk of poaching, five at medium risk, and five at low risk of poaching. And to keep it um, a valid experiment, we didn't tell the rangers the classification of each of these um, of each of these areas in advance, so they didn't know um, if one area was high, medium, or low. And we also focused on areas that had been infrequently patrolled in the past, so we weren't just relying on historical patterns. And um, after we uh, after uh, we selected these 15 areas, we shared them with the rangers um, who went for a month-long patrol at a time for each set of regions. And they came back and shared their data with us. And we found that um, in Shripak, for example, um, the, the rangers found um, almost put many snares in the areas that we predict to be at high risk of poaching and the medium risk of poaching, and there was none in the low risk um, areas, which showed to us that our pod system was able to effectively discriminate between relative areas of poaching threat. Um, but then also that rangers, um, during a month where we are focusing on making predictions at only high risk areas, the rangers found nearly a thousand snares in a single month, which corresponds um, which which compares to a typical month when they'd find between two and five hundred snares. So we we're really excited about this um, because the not only did our 
our pause system seemed to be like making good predictions, but it was actually um, the process of recommending areas to p- patrol and having the rangers go out there um, over the course of a month on patrol actually seemed to be like feasible and useful and insightful for the, the rangers. So we're really excited about that. Um, and um, in the, the two or three years since then, uh, we've just focused on scaling up and uh, working with more parks and uh, really like maximizing the impact of pods by um, working with the SMART, the, um, the software system that I mentioned before, which is run by a consortium of different conservation NGOs, including WWF, Wildlife Conservation Society, Panthera, um, and others. And um, working with SMART to add our pause system into their database software. So uh, this um, will make pause available as a plugin for all parks on the SMART platform um, who are already recording and storing and managing all their data on this platform already. So it really is like the most frictionless way of... um, bringing pause to these sites so they don't have to go through us to generate these predictions or anything like that. They can just kind of hit a button and um, generate these results um, pretty automatically. Okay, so there's two acronyms there. There's pause and smart. So just to confirm, pause is the algorithm or the model where people can plug in patrol data and then it will spit out the probability of a snare in a given location, right? Exactly, yeah. And then SMART is just a database where the park rangers can log their patrol data onto this platform. Is that correct? Exactly, yes. So now PAUSE is part of SMART. So this um, AI predictive model is now part of this database software. Got it. Well, it's great that your model has already produced some really nice tangible results. But are you ever worried that poachers can do the same like create some ai model to kind of counter your efforts (laughs) um certainly uh, a savvy picture uh, could um like build a similar model but the the crux of this model um really depends on the quality of the past data that is collected um and hopefully none of these poachers have access to the historical ranger patrol data and if they did, we would have <laughs> um, a much a very different um, set of problems because then they would be able to see everywhere that rangers have been in the past and infer probably um, much better exactly like the ranger patrol patterns as a result. So without having access to that data, um, there there really is no uh, no insight. But certainly we are um, we are very uh, attuned to the fact that. Um, even if they don't um, have access to the AI model, they are um, probably reacting to the ranger's um, activity. So uh, a savvy poacher will recognize, oh, hey, my snares keep getting removed. I should probably not keep not continue to poach in the same region, but let me probably go somewhere else. So um, because now the poachers are responding to um, the ranger's activity, this means that our actions today, like where the rangers are patrolling, changes the state of the world tomorrow. It changes where the poachers are going um, in the next day or the next month or whatnot. So this um, becomes a game theoretic setting in which um, the rangers must proactively think about how they want to act um, today, anticipating the poacher's response. Hmm. So for the current pause model, 
you're feeding it historical patrol data, right? Yeah. So is it able to respond to changing patterns from poachers? And if not, then what do we need to do to be one step ahead of the game? Exactly. Yes. So the the pause system, as we have um, integrated with Smart, um, is just focusing on this core supervised learning problem of trying to predict general poaching threats. So we're not we're assuming that poaching pattern is is static, and this assumption is is necessary because most parts have very very little data. So um, we can barely even estimate what general poaching patterns are like, let alone um, understand how poachers are changing in response to major behavior. Um, but at the same time, we have also focused on parts um, that do have um, better quality and more plentiful data. Um, so this has been working um, with Richardson Falls National Park in Uganda um, that have uh, many more years of, of rather complete, um, rather comprehensive patrol data. And analyzing uh, in this park, uh, we're actually wrapping up a causal inference study uh, right now to actually uh, pin down the causal effect. Um, so we're trying to understand um, how poachers will respond to increased or decreased range of patrols. So if a range of patrols more, does poaching um, in that one square kilometer region um, decrease in the next month? And if so, then we see this deterrence effect. Oh, oh excuse me. <laughs> and if so, we see this deterrence effect in which our actions uh, are actually reducing the amount of poaching happening in the future. And then that behavior um, then become, takes us to a sequential decision-making setting where we have to uh, make adaptive decisions that respond to these these poachers' changing behavior. Um, and that leads us to the world of reinforcement learning where we have to kind of plan um, on, a, on a sequence of steps that's anticipating that kind of future reaction. So there, that leads us to like another algorithmic advance um, that we had to uh, work through in order to uh, better capture all the complexities of this poaching domain. Nice. Has this been built out yet? Yes. So we have um, we have a paper uh, from 2021 um, about uh, robust reinforcement learning. So thinking about the problem of making sequential decisions um, in a context similar to poaching, where we don't have a perfect um, understanding of the environment so we don't know exactly like okay the poachers will respond to ranger patrols uh, by like a 0.32 decrease you know month after month because having a precise number like 0.32 is very very unrealistic um, to know with certainty but instead we can be much more confident that a true number might be something like 0.3 to 0.4 um, so now we have an interval over which we're uncertain about like what the poacher's true behavior is. And then we want to make sure that we're doing planning that is robust to that uncertainty. So um, that, that paper is looking at this question of robust planning using reinforcement learning to account for um, that sequential decision-making setting, that game-theoretic response of, um, of rangers adapting, of poachers respond, adapting to ranger patrols. Nice. So pause is based on a supervised learning model, right? And then this new model is based on reinforcement learning. So is this new one out in production yet? So um, the reinforcement learning um, um, angle of this work, we have not um, deployed in a real park setting yet. Uh, We would really like to um, at some point. Um, If 
if there is uh, a site where that is able to make kind of more um, more fast-paced day-to-day um, reactions. Because at the moment, a lot of parks do planning on a month-by-month basis. So they'll decide a series of uh, phases of patrol um, every month and then uh, kind of reevaluate um, every four weeks or so. But to do uh, more intentional sequential decision-making, uh, we will require much shorter time steps. So kind of planning on a day-to-day basis um, where we're collecting information much more quickly. And uh, I'm sure that there are um, RFX out there who are uh, doing a much more rapid um, data collection like that. Um, just we have not, uh, of the sites that we've talked to, like none of them seem to be kind of at the scale of what would um, would be necessary for implementing our approach. Yeah, I think my overall my overall strategy as a researcher is to kind of focus on both of these angles simultaneously. So um, really getting the deployment aspect um, right and making sure that we're, you know, building a product that is um, useful and usable um, for today's world, but then also thinking about research advances that will enable us to uh, adapt to and plan against more complex settings, such as with um, this reinforcement learning um, approach. And with the hope that, you know, in a few years, as our the amount of data collection that we're getting improves and our the speed at which we're able to like make decisions um shortened as well then these two worlds will start to collide and then um, what is currently like more of an abstract problem right now with reinforcement learning will become actually useful and usable um in the future as well okay and I actually want to take a quick step back and kind of clearly define what supervised learning and reinforcement learning is for our less technical listeners. So for supervised learning, you're basically training a model based on some data and you're giving it the answer. So the the standard example that comes to mind is identifying whether an image is a cat or a dog. So how you would go about this is you would find millions of images of cats or dogs and then you would feed all these images to the model and for each round you would tell the model the answer so you would give it an image of a cat and tell it that this is a cat and then if it's a dog you would tell it this is a dog hence the term supervised learning you're supervising it by telling it the answer and then after millions of rounds of this training eventually the model will be smart enough so that when you feed it a new image it can you know, accurately determine whether it's a cat or a dog. And then reinforcement learning or sequential decision-making, that's a completely different beast. So that's like, imagine you're a user in a game and every step you take will lead to different outcomes. So you're basically training the user to take the optimal step to, you know, get the highest reward in the game. Um, So I think... A good example of that is like training a model how to play chess or how to play Go. And I think AlphaGo, which is the the algorithm that Google trained uh, to play Go, which beat the best Go players in the world, that is a form of reinforcement learning, right? Exactly, yes. So reinforcement learning um, is has been um, used for all the sequential settings, um, like in particular gameplay that we've seen. So um, the, the world's best chess 
Go, StarCraft, poker, um, all of these like computer, um, all of these AI systems that have you know, outcompeted um, humans, including in video games, have all been um, using reinforcement learning to do exactly the same thing, do sequential decision making. But the key difference between AlphaGo um, or the StarCraft agent um, versus the reinforcement learning agent that we're um, that we're building is that in uh, settings like Go or StarCraft, you have very you have kind of infinite um, amounts of data that you can train on because you can always just like build a simulator or like build a synthetic um, chess opponent. But for us, we can't just build a synthetic poacher. Um, we really want to understand like how like real human poachers behave, so that drastically limits the amount of data that we have, which drastically um, limits the ability at which we're able to understand like how the real environment will respond to any sets of actions that we take. Got it. Okay, so another theoretical question for you. Let's say your pause model successfully deters poachers from setting snares in these national parks around the world. Can they resort to any other methods for hunting and poaching? Or are you able to thwart those methods as well? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure people, you know, are so creative <laughs> that I'm sure they'll uh, they'll find other things, whether that's um, act- active hunting techniques, whether that's, you know, spending more time poaching at night to avoid being caught by rangers. Um, there's... <laughs> rangers have even um, reported that... Uh, the rangers that I've talked to in Belize, for example, they've even reported that um, they think poaching um, happens... There's an increase in poaching during the full moon, sorry, during the new moon, because poachers um, who go out at night will avoid the full moon because they think there's a greater likelihood of being caught because there's more light out. Um, so instead, they go out by new moon. So <laughs> humans are extremely resourceful, they're extremely adaptive, um, and very creative in in finding uh, ways around any barrier um, that we set. So that's why I think kind of all these things need to happen in parallel, not just. Um, like improving the like the number and the efficacy of rangers on protected areas, but also focusing on education campaigns um, to dissuade people from consuming wildlife goods such as ivory and, and tiger substances. But then also um, to provide alternative livelihoods to um, people who would otherwise turn to something like bushmeat poaching so that they no longer have to rely on extraction from the land, but rather have other means of living like a well-fed and and nourished life. Yeah, that's a good point. And I've had a few other guests on the podcast say the same thing, where conservation is only around like 10% science. The rest of it, and more importantly, it's about working with these local communities to build capacity and ensuring that they are able to live sustainably and sufficiently. Yes. So we've pretty much covered your project and how it works. I'd now like to move on to understand your story a bit more, because you come from a computer science background, right? And the usual route for CompSci graduates is to become a developer and work at a fang company, for example. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm curious to hear your story and how you ended up in conservation. Yeah, so I um, got into conservation because I've always just been really, really passionate about um, environmental challenges. Ever since I was a kid, when I was nine years old, I decided to become vegetarian just because I loved animals so much. Um, 
And that has always just kind of been a personal passion of mine, um, just concern for the environment. But I never uh, thought that it would be something that I could, you know, make a career out of or spend most of my day thinking about. I always thought like, okay, well, um, how, let me just focus on that as kind of a side thing. Let me think about how I can like reduce my personal impacts on the environment and whatnot. Uh, but then when I was um, a junior in college, I was getting more and more excited about the possibility of doing research in computer science, but didn't know what I would possibly want to do research in. So I started just investigating a little bit and saying like, okay, what what is the state of research that people are, are working on? And I came across um, this uh, subgroup uh, called like AF Social Good and Computational Sustainability of various researchers working on conservation and other challenges uh, such as public health. Um, and my advisor, Nolan Tambay, is really like one of the, the, the pioneers um, of, of the, these subfields, um, especially in this, the whole world of AI and social good. So um, as soon as I like realized that there were actually computer scientists who were using skills um, that I had, for example, um, but to solve these problems that I just find so, so urgent, I was really inspired and I just recognize immediately like this is this is my calling this is what I want to spend the next many many years working on and I was I was lucky uh that um I I found that I came across this world um at such a I think it's such an early stage in my computer science career and then I was able to apply directly for PhD programs to uh, start doing research in the subfield immediately um out of college and um, that's what I've been working on for the past five years. <laughs> nice, nice. So for any listener who wants to learn CompSci or data science to help the planet, what yeah. resources would you recommend or what skills should they learn? Yeah, I think I think a, a general um, familiarity with like data science, data analysis, the basics of machine learning, I think are all helpful. Um, I think generally like being computationally minded, um, taking more like math classes, probability analysis, all that um, is helpful optimization as well. Uh, but I think um, more the the side of things that people often overlook is the importance of actually um, building up um, deep understanding of the problems that you're working on as well. So um, it's, I think it's really important to spend time as well actually reading about and understanding um environmental problems and how ecosystems work and what poaching behavior is like and how local communities respond um, to to um, changes in environmental management. I think really understanding the nuances um, of the this problem setting um, makes you a much uh, makes you much more well equipped as a researcher to first identify what problem is even worth pursuing um, and then design a solution appropriately to start addressing it. Got it. Are there any specific languages or packages that people should learn? For example, R or Python or Scikit-Learn, Pandas, Keras, etc. Um, or does it not really matter? Yeah, I, I would say that like exactly what tool you're working on um, matters a lot less because uh, having picking whatever your favorite is, um, I definitely Python, you know, is the most universal right now um, in the in the AI world. Um, but then any any kind of commonly used framework, um, I would say is is fine to just really build up your other understanding on. And then once you have that kind of strong foundation, it's very easy to you know, develop to pick up whatever 
skills you need uh, for a specific project. You know, if you like trans, um, if you transfer from focusing on images to focusing on text to focusing on um, more aggregate data, like it's you'll become much more. Um, you'll be able to adapt very easily once you have that foundation built up. And I think exactly how your foundation is set um, is pretty negligible in the long run. Okay, so to confirm, you would recommend finding a problem to solve first, understanding the problem, and then you can find the tool sets and the frameworks to solve it. Is that correct? Totally, yeah. I think I think it's really hard to... Um, like. If, if people are excited about one of their challenges, um, it's always more most useful to start with a problem um, or, or to at least just go out and find, like, okay, what data is available? You know, if you really care about deforestation, um, go start exploring um, remote sensing imagery. There's tons that are available, for example, on Google Earth Engine. Um, if you really care about, um, about poaching and biodiversity loss, then... Um, there is actually some um, data sets available on um, biodiversity data um, throughout the world. So there's um, all of the camera trap imagery that is available in Wildlife Insights. Um, so you can actually like look at species uh, observations and abundance estimates um, through this uh, aggregate network of citizen science that's been collected. Um, there's okay. To confirm, that's called Wildlife Insights. Yes, Wildlife Insights. Um, there's there's um, information about the illegal killing of elephants, so that's called Mike, um, M I K E. I don't, I forget what the M stands for, but the the I K E is the illegal killing of elephants. <laughs> so, so I think just starting off with like a data set there, and then kind of like opening that up in whatever you know your favorite um, system is, whether that's uh, Python or R or MATLAB, which is I guess growing more uh, more and more obsolete nowadays. Um, but start just start start to explore kind of like what the nature of this data is. Recognize like how messy it is, how little data there actually um, is available compared to a lot of um, other standard data sets for uh, that people might be used to in computer science. Um, in in machine learning, where you know you have these large image databases of millions of of um, of historical points, for example, like here. We often have, you know, a thousand if we're lucky. Mm. So you're now an expert in using machine learning to reduce poaching using this awesome PAWS framework, P-A-W-S framework that you built. But of course, there's still a long way to go to stop poaching or just over harvesting of natural resources. So if you had all the power, all the money and resources in the world, if you could do anything you want to stop poaching once and for all, what would you do to fulfill this? Oh, that's a that's a great question, Sam. And I, if I had, you know, like all the resources available, I would do two things. I would one, um, like bring in a, some good engineering support, like let's say a team of, you know, like four or five good software engineers to really kind of overhaul the um, the pod system and um, make it a much more um, smooth and easily usable by by parks because right now this has been a tool that um we've developed and maintained um as a small academic research lab that where it's just me and another phd student kind of like working on 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 the de- the development and maintenance of ponds as 
kind of a, a side gig on top of our our primary line focus, which is to be researchers. Um, so if we could have proper engineering support, um, which I think is kind of universally necessary throughout academia um, in computer science to actually make these tools uh, useful and available to the public, that would um, that would be really helpful. But um, with all of the surplus money, um, I would uh, use that money um, to support the rangers like on the ground in Richardson Falls and in um, Shupak Wildlife Sanctuary to provide them with better equipment, to help build another patrol post, to um, give them new boots um, and better walkie-talkies and whatnot um, for the, the purposes of their, their day-to-day comfort and well-being. Um, I think those are really like the heroes of the story and um, they're they're often you know they're um, I think the the average ranger makes something like $150 a month um, and 30% of rangers worldwide contract malaria most of them are like wearing boots and equipment that are too old so really um, helping to support them I think would make a huge difference for conservation outcomes what would you say the main bottleneck is for tackling your problem of poaching is it the lack of data or is it the the amount of rangers available i i think both of those are are pretty much are are very um aligned so if we had more rangers then we'd have more data um so i think Certainly, having having more rangers, improving uh, data collection, um, having better monitoring of biodiversity and their outcomes. Um, I think, like all of these, I think everything, <laughs> all all these are bottlenecks. I guess where I'm trying to get at with the question is, since our topic today is about AI, if there's ever a point where we can train the AI model to be perfect in detecting snares like it's it can just detect snares 100 percent accurately across the entire national park would this be enough to stop poaching given the amount of rangers that we have now or do we still oh. need to hire more rangers to fulfill this yeah yeah i see i think i think we would still need to drastically increase the number of rangers especially because we have this like this wonderful but ambitious um, new target of from um, December 2022 at the UN um, Convention on Biodiversity, COP27, um, where 196 countries around the world uh, signed on to the Global Biodiversity Framework that includes uh, what's called 30 by 30 to designate 30% of the world's um, land and terrestrial and marine surfaces as protected by the year 2030, so a mere seven years away from now. Um, and currently only 17% of uh, land is protected and only 30% of, sorry, and only 8% of waters are protected. So a uh, recent um, paper that came out in Nature Sustainability uh, estimates that to reach this 30 by 30 milestone, uh, we'll need 1.3 million rangers um, around the world. And currently we have only about 300,000 rangers. So we need to increase fivefold the number of rangers um, to even meet this. Uh, these standards. So I certainly uh, think that um, improving both efficacy um, of where rangers are going um, and increasing the number of rangers will really be kind of like the the best dual action um, for for biodiversity outcomes. Got it. Got it. So from your experience building PAWS, 
and working with these protected areas to reduce poaching, if you could condense it down to three main messages or call to actions that you would like to share with our audience, what would that be? Yeah, so I would say one um, one key lesson is that, and I was really trying to emphasize this earlier, uh, we, I think computer science and AI are like really helpful um, tools with a lot of potential, um, but they can't work in isolation. Like we really have to develop these systems um, in close um, conversation and partnership um, with people who are actually on the front lines doing this work. So in order for us to actually um, design pause and understand like what inputs we need to put in, um, how the the system should be set, the way that we should be making predictions, how recommendations might fit into to ranger patrols. Um, all of that required, you know, like weekly or monthly calls with rangers. It required um, a bit traveling to Cambodia and Belize um, and actually talking with rangers there and visiting um, them on the ground. Um, and n- like none of the- this would have been effective without um, their buy-in and their support and whatnot. So I think that is kind of like a critical first step that we can't do this alone. Um, and I think and I think that that works um, both ways as well. I think that um, there is a lot of um, potential for researchers, whether that's computer scientists or ecologists or something else, um, to really support um, practitioners and and um, conservationists on the ground. So I, I think um, having more like reach out from their sides um, would be um, be very helpful. I think um, the a second um, lesson I would love people to learn is that um, whatever whatever if you do have a technical background, um, you don't have to be confined to only like working within whatever that technical area is. Um, more and more computer science, for example, is becoming really really applied. So it's never it's it's rarely just you know AI, but it's often AI for epidemiology it's ai for education it's ai for um conservation it's ai for public health there's so many um and growing opportunities for these this kind of applied work um so if there's something that you know you're really passionate about and you have the second technical background um i really encourage you to explore um what the intersection of that might look like because i think the world is increasingly going to be interdisciplinary but also that if you know if you have a personal passion, you can, I'm sure there's a way to connect that um, with whatever um, other things it is that you're doing. And then you can really, you know, make blend this world together and, and make your passion part of part of what you spend the majority of your time focusing on. Um, and the third, the third is that uh, we are in the middle of the sixth mass extinction and the biodiversity crisis is, is urgent and is imminent. Um, and the UN, for example, um, stated at the, at the December 2022, um, committee convention on biodiversity that, um, urging the world to treat the biodiversity crisis, um, with as much urgency as the climate crisis. So I think it really, um, I've really been able to see over the past 15 years, um, people going from saying, oh, I feel like, yeah, maybe climate is important to now, you know, there's so many startups, so many initiatives, so many like, university departments that are focused on climate. 
And I would love to see um, a similar trend come out for biodiversity as well. So I, I hope <laughs> more, uh, more people from your audience will be, uh, will actively um, join up in this movement. Awesome. Well, that is super insightful. Please hand off to the audience where they can contact you or learn more about your work or any other resources you would like to share. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the uh, wonderful podcast. I really enjoyed talking to you. And if anyone in your audience is interested in learning more about, more about my work specifically, uh, you can find me on my website, uh, lily-x.github.io, if you just search my name. Um, or if you're interested um, in kind of more work at this intersection of AI and applications, um, search AI for Social Impact. Uh, my advisor, Nolan Tabe, um, has put out a book on this recently, and there's just a growing number of uh, workshops and um, and articles and whatnot that are coming out about research and other opportunities to be done at the space of AI with societal applications such as conservation. So Perfect. I will link all of these in the show notes or the YouTube description, so be sure to check those out. Thank you so much, Lily, and all the best. Awesome. Such a pleasure to chat with you, Sam, um, and wishing everybody in the audience a wonderful day. That's it for today's episode of EcoChat. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you could leave a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you use. We're also on Twitter and YouTube. It really helps others find our show in the search algorithm. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on EcoChat.